Hey everyone, it's Joel here. There are lots of strong opinions about cancel culture. Some people find it very, very morally unsavory, while other people think that it's a needed form of accountability in a world where people can get away with lots of really problematic things. In this episode, I review some of the arguments that my students and I have been discussing. If you're not one of my students, just wanna say it's great to have you and I hope you'll stick around for more. So as I've been preparing for this section of the class, I was asking around social media for resources and materials to discuss with my students. Um, Materials about cancel culture. And I was actually really intrigued by how much, I I don't know if vitriol is too strong, how much opposition, yes, let's go with that, how much opposition there was to cancel culture from some of my fellow academics, fellow philosophers. And I'm not saying I don't see some of the problems with cancel culture. That's not what I'm saying. I guess I was just surprised at the extent of resistance. Now, it's possible that there's a selection effect going on here, and all the people who are really, really triggered by cancel culture saw my posts asking for materials and just needed to vent, needed to get some things off their chest. Very possible. In any case, there is a lot of concern about cancel culture. Let me give you an example. Someone who I'll leave nameless, um, a philosopher, wrote on one of my threads that they made their students write, quote, cancel culture is a plague and I will not participate in it, unquote. They made them write this over and over for the entire three-hour exam. Now, this person is clearly joking around, I think, although I wouldn't put it past a philosopher to do something really interesting and bizarre like that. Um, We've been known to do some bizarre things, but in any case, I think it's clear that this person is kidding around, but they're also revealing something about their views of cancel culture. They think it is morally concerning. That's modest. They use the word plague. On the other hand, I've seen a lot of people say, no, the problem isn't cancel culture. The problem is that people don't like being held accountable for their actions and for their wrongdoings. So there's a lot of differing opinion and views about this. And I was really surprised to find that there's actually a lot of cool literature exploring the ethics of cancel culture. And I'm sure that will continue to grow in the years to come. I certainly hope so. So in this podcast, we're going to review some of the things that we talked about in class. So of course, by now you've probably heard of cancel culture if you're not one of my students. And, you know, it goes sort of like this. A celebrity, for example, says something sexist. And people on social media began to publicly call out the celebrity's behavior. And this is usually on social media, eventually leading to public shaming and efforts to deplatform the celebrity for their behavior. Comedians, influencers, musicians, CEOs, and even college professors have been canceled for perceived wrongdoings. 
you can go ahead and do a Google search and you'll just find page after page of examples of cancellation. Some successful, some not. As some people argue, canceling is a form of shunning with the goal of holding the canceled person accountable for harmful behavior. But this raises a variety of tricky philosophical questions. And here's a question we've been wrestling with as a class. Are there any virtues of cancel culture? Here's a related question. Are there any vices of cancel culture? And finally, we've also been kicking around this question. Should we participate in canceling certain people, canceling certain influencers? And if so, how do we do that in a way that is morally conscientious? The listener should know that the ethics of cancel culture was the number one pick in my class. When we took a vote for the final topic, I had a list of different topics that we could explore. And as I kind of narrowed it down, it's through different um, recurring polls, things kept going right back to cancel culture. Cancel culture won the first round. It was very popular alongside abortion, climate justice, and the ethics of romance and love. And then when I took the second round to narrow those top four or five, um, again, cancel culture won out. And it was the most popular topic um, that my class voted on. And it makes sense why that is, right? Cancellation has become an increasing phenomenon and seems to have really taken off during the pandemic. In fact, due to class discussions, I've learned about who is and isn't getting canceled these days in pop culture. And for example, my students were, were quite surprised, quite surprised to hear that I didn't know who Andrew Tate was. As a disclaimer, I had seen some of his reels on Instagram before I n knew who he exactly was. I just didn't track his name. So frankly, when I first saw his reels before realizing who he was, he didn't really, he, let me put it this way. He did seem sketchy and I didn't really pay much attention to it. I just thought that was a little bit unsavory. Next, swipe up. However, now that I've been talking about Andrew Tate for a whole week, my social media algorithms, they're doing their job, and I've seen a lot more of his content in my reels. If only, if only cancel culture actually worked more effectively, my brain wouldn't have to be seared by some of the truly misogynistic and toxic things this dude says and does. And what's interesting is that this point about Tate's uncancelability leads us to a few concerns about cancel culture. In particular, one concern is that cancel culture doesn't really work. The people who need to be held accountable because they have so much power don't end up actually getting canceled. But those who, sure, do some bad things but aren't particularly powerful are the ones who get canceled. And so we don't actually have accountability structures for the very powerful who do egregious things. Now, that's not exactly one of the key arguments we kicked around as a class, but it does lead us to consider some of the potential shortcomings of cancel culture. And what we're going to focus on are some of the moral shortcomings of cancel culture. Okay, let's get into it. So as a class, we explored some of the arguments from a book by philosopher Mary Beth Willard. It's a recent book that she published called Why It's Okay to Enjoy the Work of Immoral Artists. Willard is an, a, is an associate professor of philosophy at Weber State 
University. And she does work on aesthetics and the ethics of enjoying art. It's really, really fascinating. So in her book, she makes the argument that cancel culture is a poor substitute for justice. Cancel culture is a poor substitute for justice. Now, to be clear, she doesn't dispute some of the core concerns of cancellation. So cancellation is often directed at people who say or do sexist things, say or do racist things, and so on. And she agrees, sexism really is bad, racism really is bad, sexual assault really is bad, and we need to find ways of holding people accountable when they engage in these problematic behaviors. However, she writes in the book, the problem is the mechanism of cancellation. Social media structurally rewards shallow thinking and swift interaction. There's no room for nuance, she writes, and no time to waste if one wants to participate. The result is that cancellation is often unfair to its target, and participating in cancellation makes us worse at thinking about ethics. Even if we rightly care very much about the injustices of sexual assault and sexual harassment, we should be cautious about joining in on calls to cancel celebrities, unquote. So why does she think this? In class, we discussed roughly three of Willard's arguments, and she gives us um, three that I've named the insensibility argument, the arbitrariness argument, and the no plan for redemption argument, or the no plan for redemption slash no plan for um, amends argument. So let's start with the first, the insensibility argument. This argument claims that cancel culture is insensible to the severity of whatever was done by the wrongdoer. She states, the problem is that cancellation seemingly erases the difference between a crude tweet and a serial sexual assault. There's one punishment for all offenses, unquote. So I think the idea here is really quite intuitive. Just imagine that someone who is an influencer makes a tweet or a reel that embodies something sexist. And people rightly should be concerned about that. What happens is that cancel culture develops this repudiation. First, you start out with this criticism. That is wrong. But then people want to hold this person accountable, understandably. And so they start doing this public shaming thing where they call this person out on social media and start to withdraw their attention. They no longer give their attention or their support to this person. And it builds this kind of ongoing social media um, public form of shaming and repudiation. And so someone who maybe you know, deserves some correction there for posting a sexist tweet can get deplatformed at the end, other end of this process. The problem, according to Willard, is that the very same thing, the very same outcome and punishment will be dished out to someone who doesn't just post a sexist tweet, but has ongoing forms of sexism in the workplace. Maybe a CEO or a powerful influencer who is discriminatory, who is toxic and displays very toxic forms of male privilege and entitlement and so on. Uh, maybe someone who has ongoing forms of sexual assault or harassment, they're going to receive this public shame. They're going to be shunned. People withdraw support. And then this person gets deplatformed. The exact same punishment is given to someone who arguably does something far, far worse as someone who does something 
far, far less worse, but still bad. And the idea here is that that's, that's not how justice should work. So think about what you might call the proportionality principle. The idea here is that punishment should be proportional to the wrongdoing. But if the punishment is equal across different forms of wrongdoing, we don't have proportional punishment. And therefore, we don't have like the, 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 the best form of justice. Like We have a diminished type of justice here. So Willard goes on to say that um, worse crimes should be met with harsher punishments. And a system where shoplifting is treated the same as murder is either treating murder too lightly or shoplifting far too seriously. And so you can see what she's trying to say about cancel culture. It doesn't treat crimes in accord with their weight. It sort of treats them all equally. And so it's a poor substitute for justice. Now, the second argument is the arbitrariness argument. And the, the idea here is that who ends up being canceled is it, it's a matter of arbitrary factors. For example, there might be periods of time where, for example, racism is at the forefront of our thinking as a society, but where other forms of wrongdoing aren't as pressing or important. For example, xenophobia or um, disdain for immigrants. And so you might have people who are saying really xenophobic things and saying things that are really threatening the well-being and lives and rights of immigrants. But because we're more focused on this other issue and not saying that's a bad thing, Willard's not saying we shouldn't focus on racism, but she's saying because this is where social media's attention is, all these other people who should be held accountable aren't held accountable and it happens to be because we're focused on race at the moment those are the people the, the people who say racially insensitive insensitive things or who worse do racist things they're going to be the ones who get canceled but maybe in a different time we'll be focused more on immigration issues and see the idea here is that who ends up receiving the justice of cancellation is it's determined to a large extent by what's popular in culture, what is occupying our social consciousness? And so again, there's another, there's just a level of arbitrariness to that. And relatedly, what is capturing society's interest and attention, or what's capturing social media's interest and attention, will also impact how much weight we put on that particular issue. So it goes back to this worry about insensibility. So Willard says, that what captures the internet's attention does not reliably track the severity of the problem. Okay, so let's move on to the next argument. The next argument is what I've called the no plan for redemption or no plan for correction argument or no, no plan for amends argument. Call it what you want. The idea here is that cancel culture lacks a plan or a structure or a procedure or a system for correcting the person who has been canceled for correcting the system. In specific, what Willard says in her book is that um, cancel culture or cancellation is an indefinite punishment. It's an indefinite punishment. There is not yet a recognized way for a canceled person to, or canceled artist to make amends. Canceling is indefinite in punishment and there is not yet a recognized way for a canceled artist to make amends. 
So think about an illustration that Willard gives. She talks about a truck driver. Suppose a truck driver is pulled over and they've been drinking on the job. So they lose their license to drive trucks and they have to go to a court hearing and there's, there's certain forms of legal punishment and correction that they go through. And yet they're not just left hanging, like they might have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous or they might have to join a certain program or go through some sort of training and really go through a system that helps adjust and correct so that they can get back into the workforce. Now, maybe they'll never become a trucker again. But nevertheless, the way we've set up the justice system, um, at least in the U.S., is that people who get caught doing these sorts of things have to undergo certain practices and, and programs or processes that help correct they're not just let go, right? The criminal justice system tries to find ways. This is a really idealized way of talking about the criminal justice system in the United States. But just, just for this example, just grant me this, that with respect to having been pulled over for drunk driving as a truck driver, like there's something you have to go through before you can get that license back. So there's like a plan. And nothing like this is found in the world of cancellation. There's the cancellation and then nothing. Like there's just no obvious way for the person who has made the transgression to come back from that or to make rectification. So Willard writes the following. The fact that there's no provision for how an artist can be restored to the public's good graces means that it's hard to find a path forward. Now, to be clear, I don't think Willard thinks that canceled artists are owed a path back to their careers. I'm not even sure she thinks that they are owed a, a path forward, maybe to like some other career. I'm not sure she's saying that. I think what she is saying, though, I think it's very clear from the chapter of this book, is that she thinks that the omission of a plan for rectification or for amends whatever you call it, it leaves cancel culture vulnerable to some really problematic outcomes. So first of all, in the absence of some sort of established plan for rectification, celebrities may default to actions that aren't adequate forms of rectification. This is what you could call the problem of inadequate rectification. A few months away, so, that, so this is what happens. You get canceled and maybe a celebrity will spend a few months away from their career. Then they'll issue a public apology, and then they're right back at it. And, and you just might think that there's something a little bit inadequate about that. So think about Louis C.K., who is um, a, a comedian. I think he's also an actor. Showed up on Parks and Rec for a few seasons as a really awkward cop who was into Leslie Nope. Very, like, not the most interesting part of Parks and Rec. But in any case, um, not too long ago, some confirmed allegations came out that he had engaged in certain types of sexual harassment um, towards women, um, including toward other female comedians that he would be on tour with. And I won't like share the details. You can look that up if you're interested. And so he was canceled. There was a public outcry against him. He lost work. He was deplatformed. He was um, supposed to be on tour and like, you know, his tours got canceled, things like that. So he was definitely canceled. And apparently what happened is he spent a few months, I think it was like less than a year, like nine months, just not doing anything, not being in the public's eye. 
then he issued a public apology and like he's right back at it he's like touring he may have lost a few million dollars i think there was an estimate of like close to 20 million dollars but like he's still really wealthy he's still sought after people still show up to his shows he's back at it and i think it left a lot of people wondering is that really what rectification looks like is that really what repentance should look like we want to hold these people accountable but in the absence of any plan for how that accountability should proceed merely canceling them doesn't really address the full issue accountability is a holistic thing and just deplatforming someone is only part of the process of accountability that that's perhaps one way of putting this argument and you know I was really provoked by something that um, one of Louis C.K.'s um, victims said, this woman, Amanda Gay. She um, came out after he he got back on tour and started doing comedy shows again. She came out and she said, look, I have to believe, quote, I have to believe there is a path to redemption for people who have done wrong. But nine months of self-imposed exile in financial comfort is not a point along that path. Unquote. And I just think that's like super insightful, super accurate. And like, I'll just show my cards here. Like, I think, I think Louis C.K. deserved to get canceled and deplatformed. Like, I think, I think it was important for him to understand that that's not okay what he's doing. And, and I think the response was fine. But um, Willard's point in this book is that, okay, like, what, what's the follow up? Because if we don't have a theory or a plan for what subsequent rectification and repentance should look like, then People like Louis C.K. are, are going to revert to to impoverished and inadequate forms of rep- rectification or repentance, such as nine months of financial comfort, quick apology, and then right back at it. You know, I think what we want is something that's we want sustainable change in people so that they don't just get right back into positions of power and perpetuate the same harms. And the idea, according to Willard, is that cancel culture, in virtue of lacking this plan for rectification, just lets people default to problematic forms of rectification. Now, there's a related problem. Willard points out that many canceled celebrities or influencers find other ways of coming back. And it's a concerning form of comeback. They flip the tables. They sometimes flip the tables on cancel culture and end up generating a following based on shared disdain for cancel culture. So this is especially true if the influencer feels that they were canceled for political or ideological reasons. So far from holding them accountable, cancel culture sometimes incentivizes immoral or concerning comebacks. So this actually happened in the Louis C.K. case. Um, Louis C.K. sort of incorporates into his comedy skits uh, or comedy routines jabs at cancel culture he, he he pokes fun at how we are all interested in publicly shaming people and how we're all kind of getting tired of this so he's kind of developing a following based on this shared disdain for cancel culture he used cancel culture against cancel culture he got canceled and then flipped that against the cancellation itself and apparently there's a whole group of people who have been canceled and have found ways to say this is a joke. This is ideologically driven. This is just politics. This is a violation of freedom of speech. And they rally all these people who are really pissed at the problematic aspects of cancel culture, who are maybe just like, you know, believe that they're at the actual victims because their political ideology is being targeted. And they end up mounting a comeback and none of the problematic attitudes or practices are really addressed. So... As I understand Willard, the problem 
the problem here isn't so much that cancel culture leaves the canceled person in a perpetual state of shame and rejection, though perhaps that is bad too. I think rather this is the issue. Because cancel culture does not establish the proper conditions for rectification, it incentivizes inadequate rectification or maybe worse, it incentivizes concerning comebacks. That takes us right back to her main point in this chapter of the book, cancel culture as a poor substitute for justice. So those are the three arguments. And I really enjoyed speaking to my class here. I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts about this. And I think there was there was really a mix of thoughts. Um, I think some of the class really really resonated with some of this and and I think part of the class didn't resonate with some of it. One objection that I kept hearing to some of these arguments is that it seems like it's not really it's not really the responsibility of those doing the canceling to provide a plan for rectification, to provide a path back to some sort of life. Maybe the state, when so go back to the truck driver case, maybe the state should have programs in place to get people back on their feet after they've lost a job for drunk driving or for something, you know, involving sexual harassment or something like that. You know, like the state should have pathways back that can that make sure these people go through a, a program or, or a type of training so that they when they get back in the workplace, they're 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 ready to participate in a way that is not problematic. Um, so maybe that's the state's responsibility, but but that's the state. And I think a lot of my students were saying, why is it the responsibility of 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 society or those doing the canceling to do anything like that? Um, you know, like, and this is a point Willard makes in the in the chapter. Like, you don't have to give your attention or support or viewership or subscription to any influencer or any celebrity. And so like when you stop showing interest in someone's music, for example, and like oh, suppose a lot of people stop showing interest in someone's music, that person might lose their career. But like we as the listeners don't then owe them some way back into a new career. That's just the nature of the market. You signed up for that risk. And likewise, Here's another risk. You might do something morally egregious or something that people find morally concerning and you'll get deplatformed. And like we don't thereby owe you for, for similar reasons. We don't owe you a way back into some, some sort of life. But again, I think th this response is okay. I think though, as I'm thinking about Willard's chapter, it seems like what Willard wants to say is, is like, yeah, that's fine. But then it seemed like cancel culture is undermining its purpose. Its purpose is to hold people accountable but now people really aren't held accountable because if particularly if they're really powerful, they will get back to their career as a celebrity or an influencer. And they're either, they're going to do that in a way that, that involves really inadequate rectification, really thin apology, really thin repentance, or worse, perhaps they're going to have this really problematic comeback where they flip the tables on cancel culture. And they get even more popular, maybe, or they just get a new type of popularity because of their disdain for cancel culture. So, so, so that response is is okay, and I think Willard's going to have some things to say about it. I think, though, maybe the other thing to say about some of these arguments that some of you brought up, some of you, I think, were really keen to to push this point that cancel culture isn't really supposed to be a substitute for justice. Like, it's 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 like a second best thing it's maybe not even second best it's like what we have to work with 
given that there's no sort of other leveraging or authority we have to deplatform these people, like the law is not going to do it. And maybe maybe you think it's it's good that the the law does not get involved to deplatform people who say something sexist. Um, you might think that there's some concerns there about government intervention, and it's like a an overreach. I don't I don't know. I'm not saying that's my view, but some people might have that view. So another so so whatever the case, you might just think cancel culture is not supposed to be a substitute for justice. It's it's just what we have to work with given very non-ideal conditions where a lot of us don't have the kind of power that celebrities have. And, and because of that, like, yeah, it's not going to look great. It's not going to look perfect, but what's the alternative? I, some of my students kept saying this, what's the alternative? The alternatives aren't good either. And so we, we might think council culture has all sorts of problems, but that's what we have to go with. And, and just to sort of support this point, I think there's something to it perhaps um, you might distinguish between two kinds of justice. Uh, philosophers often talk about ideal justice and real-world justice. Ideal versus real-world justice. And ideal justice is like what we should aspire toward. It's like if, if everyone was interested in doing what's right and we had resources adequate to pursue the, the good and to pursue justice Here's what we should do. Here's how we should organize society. Here's how we should proceed with things. But we don't live in those conditions. We don't live in conditions where people are all interested in doing what's right. We don't live in conditions where we have the resources and structures to do what's right. And so we can't really approximate ourselves to ideal justice in, in this moment. We live in the real world. We live in non-ideal contexts. And the idea is that in, in, in these contexts, where the ideal is unreachable, we are left with second best alternatives. And this may not be ideally just. Cancel culture may not be ideal justice. I don't think it is. But it may nevertheless be just enough to be the path forward in our current context. When the real world doesn't allow for those with less power to hold the powerful accountable in the most ideal ways, maybe we are left to hold them accountable in non-ideal ways. But nevertheless, it's what we have. I'll leave you to think further about that argument. We've been chatting through Mary Beth Willard's arguments about cancel culture. Go ahead and check out her book, Why It's Okay to Enjoy the Work of Immoral Artists. Thanks for listening in to this podcast. If you're one of my students, I really enjoyed talking this issue over with you. And if you're not, hey, maybe we'll run into each other and I'd love to hear your thoughts about cancel culture. All right, see you all next time.